Amen. That was some great worship, and it is good to be at church with you this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. If I've never seen you before, welcome. Um, it's good to be with you and to do my favorite thing of the week, dive into God's Word together. Um, you know, as I was thinking this week, uh, every once in a while in life, you find yourself in one of those situations that no matter how hard you try, you just can't get out of, right? Those situations where you just want out, but you don't know quite what to do. Right? Maybe you're stuck in a bad scenario, you're going through a trial or a test, or, or, or maybe you just volunteered for something and now you're like, man, I'm in over my head, what am I doing here? Um, I know for me, I think of this because just, just a few weeks ago, I was uh, in a situation where I donated bone marrow to my younger brother. He's recovering from leukemia, and so I went in for a surgical procedure, and um, it was not a big procedure or anything like that, but you know, any kind of surgery you get a little nervous about, right? They're going to put you under, and, and I was handling it pretty well. I went in the morning of the, the surgery and sitting in my room, it was a bit overwhelming because this team that helps you do these bone marrow transplants, they dig in through my back into my hip and take out all this bone marrow and then, you know, filter out the stem cells and give it to my younger brother. And uh, it's a big team. It's an expensive procedure. And so they, they want to make sure it's right. And there's like 20 people running around and doing different things. And it's kind of overwhelming, but I was doing fine. I'm like, okay, here we go. And finally, an the anesthesiologist comes in and he says, hey, Justin, we're ready to go into surgery. Um, and I'm going to put you under, blah, blah. And he goes, hey, I have, a, I have an option for you. Most people do this. Um, I have this little cocktail here that I can, you know, put into your IV and you'll man, it'll loosen you up. It'll make you not nervous when you go into that operating room and I put you under. And, and you know, what do you say? Why don't I give that to you? And I'm like, no way, man. And I'm a man. I don't need that. I'm good. Just go operate, you know, let's go. And uh, he's like, are you sure? You know, he asked me three times. So like, he really didn't see what I was seeing in myself. Um, and he keeps going, hey, are, are, are you sure, Justin? Are you sure? It's kind of overwhelming, you know? And I'm like, no, no big deal. I've had shoulder surgeries and I've been under before. No big deal. And I guess I don't remember the operating room because I definitely should have taken his offer up. Um, they finally wheel me to the operating room and if you've ever been in one of those and you've been awake when you go in, they're like 100 degrees cooler than any other room you'll ever go into in your life. They are freezing cold. And you're wearing these little gowns, you don't have underwear, it's like you're freezing, you know? It's like, and so I, I, immediately this nurse saw how cold I was and she brings over a, a warm, like a warmed blanket. Oh, and she tucked me in like I was a little baby, you know, and my arms are tucked into my side and I was laying there and, and everybody's moving around and they're getting ready. The doctor's putting on his playlist of music and um, I had multiple doctors operating on me. It was like, I, I, was, I was like, okay, this is a bit much, but I'm making it, you know, and, and finally a nurse comes up to me and she goes, hey, Justin, I just, I'm going to put this oxygen mask on you. I need you to take a few breaths. We're getting your body ready to go into surgery. And so I go, okay, cool. And my arms are tucked by my side. I can't get them out, but... She puts this mask on me, and she didn't realize that she didn't open up the oxygen on it. And so she puts this mask on me, and she puts one hand on my head just to make sure, I, and, and I can't breathe. And uh, she's talking, and the doctor's asking her questions. She's paying no attention at all, and I'm underneath her, and I can't move my hands. So I'm underneath her, like, oh, you know, yelling and screaming, but she can't hear me because the mask is on, you know? And, and I'm supposed to be breathing, and, and I see, I look over, I see my heart rate going up on the screen, you know, it's like, beep, 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 you know, and I'm screaming, I'm finally, I'm like convulsing my whole body left and right, and the doctor looks down, and she pulls it off, and she goes, what's wrong, are you nervous? I go, I'm not nervous, but I can't breathe, and I'm like, out of breath, and my lungs are blue, I almost died on the table before I even went into surgery, and she goes, oh, look at this, I forgot to open this up, and she opens up the oxygen, puts it back on my face, and I'm like, 
But it was, you know, like that point where it's too late. Like, I was lost at this point. The doctor walks by with these needles, like giant needles that are about to go on my back. And I see those, and I'm like, <gasps> freaking out. And, and I'm, in my head, I'm like, you know what? I know it's probably to, like, save my brother's life and all, but I, he doesn't really need my bone marrow. Like, I could get out of this. Like, I could be one of those guys who grabs the thing and, and runs out half naked down the hallway and just bails this situation. Like, I was like, how do I, how do I get out of this? But I couldn't. It was like I was committed. I was stuck. I was locked in. And, and finally, the anesthesiologist, I think he saw me struggling over here. Like, my arms are still locked in. It's like I was freaking out. And he sees my heart rate going up, and he goes, hey, man, you got to calm down. I'm like, okay, okay. He goes, look, check it out. And he's got this syringe. He goes, I'm just going to push this into your IV. Not into my arm. That would have been even worse. But I'm going to put this into your IV, and you're going to go to sleep. You're going to feel my IV was in my hand. He goes, you're going to feel a little burning sensation in your hand, and then it's out. Good night. You're, you're, don't worry about anything. I go, okay. Take a deep breath. And he goes, on the count of three, you'll be out. One, two, three. But I wasn't out. <laughs> and I was like... Dude, ah, stop, stop. And I pulled the mask off and I'm like, it's not working. I don't feel it in my hand. I was afraid of being one of those people that, you know, you hear about that are like awake during the surgery. And like my arms are freaking and I'm freaking out. I'm like, it's not working, doc. And that was the last thing I remember. Suddenly it just kicked in <laughs> and I was out. And it was like, I was about to run out of that room when, you know, God put me under. And, uh, I bring that up because sometimes, you know, I know that's a bit dramatic of a situation, but sometimes it just feels like life, doesn't it? You get into these things and you're just like, how do I get out of here? How do I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to commit to that. There's this part of me that I know I'm supposed to be committed and, 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 and faithful and all this, that, and the other God. But man, honestly, I just want to just run away. And if you can kind of put yourself into that mindset and understand that, you'll probably understand the mindset of the guy we're going to talk about this morning, about Abraham during one of the most trying moments of his life. It was definitely something that he was going to go through as we look at this story this morning, something that he went through that I'm sure he did not want to go through at all. Yet all along inside, I think he's had that struggle that so many of us feel as we go through life that, man, you're here and you're committed to this and you're going through it, but man, I, I just, I don't, I don't feel like I can deal with this. I don't feel like this is me. I don't want to be this or do this or go through that. And, and that's kind of the story of Abraham this morning. We're going to look at, and we've been looking through Hebrews chapter 11, at some of the greatest stories of faith that you'll ever see in the scriptures or in this world as a whole. People who have been gone through the craziest things in life. People who have de dedicated their lives and committed them to the Lord. But I think this morning we get to... As, as the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews 11, I think we get to ultimately one of his greatest or the pinnacle of his examples of faith. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 through 19 this morning is where we're going to be. And you can put a finger in Genesis chapter 22 because we're also going to go there. But one of the greatest stories of faith this world has ever known. And, and, and honestly, the story, it's like I've taught it multiple times and every time I teach it, it's like there's a part of me that it's one of the greatest lessons that I could be reminded of, but at the same time, it's gut-wrenching. It's confusing. It's hard. It's, it's something, and it draws out of us something in each and every one of us that makes us go, ah, I don't know if I could do that. And, it, you know, the story goes like this. Um, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 through 19, at least the recap of the story. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. 
concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Abraham has been the person in Hebrews chapter 11 that Paul devotes the most time to, the most story to as he's telling uh, stories from the lives of different people that have been faithful to God's call in their lives. And Abraham, we kind of get to what I call the pinnacle of his life. You see, Abraham's life, man, Abraham was a faithful guy. He had been through a lot. He had trusted God with a lot. We've seen this. Um, we've seen that Abraham, um, previously in this chapter, he referenced back to the fact that God called Abraham out of Haram to go and follow him to a land that he would reveal to him later on. It's like open GPS, step out, Abraham, and follow God. And I'll, God says, I'll show you where you're going along the way. So Abraham leaves his family, takes his wife with him, messes up and brings Lot, his cousin, with him too, but takes his wife with him, brings him out, steps out and follows God. And he doesn't do it perfectly, makes some mistakes along the way, but what a step of faith that must have been for Abraham to step out and follow God. And then we're told that there's kind of like an interjection that uh, Paul makes as he's going through Hebrews 11 here. And he says, look, Abraham realized along the way that as he was stepping out and following God's promises, that he wasn't looking for a land made with hands, right? He was looking for that heavenly homeland. And in some sense, Abraham's life was lived looking forward to promises, kind of never fully arriving. He spent a good part of his walk with God going, hey, God, I know you've promised this. I know you say that. God had promised him, look, that I'm going to make you a great nation. That in you, there's going to be a nation that is as 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 big as the, the stars are in heaven or, or the, the sand in the sea. It's like, he goes, you're going to have a people as numerous as all that coming from you. And so Abraham, as he's walking, he's also looking forward to how God's going to make those promises happen. How's God going to make me into a great nation? Well, he would think logically, and, and God promised it, that you're going to have a child. You're going to have a son. You're going to have someone that, that this promise can be inherited through. I'm going to make you a great people. And for that to happen, you've got to have an heir. And so he jump-started things a little bit with, with his wife Sarah's uh, servant, Hagar, right? And we know that blunder along the way. He had Ishmael. But God said, look, Ishmael, your son, that you tried to force this to happen, that's not the son of promise. The son of promise, and Abraham's getting older and older and older, the son of promise is going to come through you and Sarah. And finally, at 100 years old, right? Oh, man, I thought parenting was hard in my 30s. But at 100 years old, this guy has that son of promise. Him and, him and Sarah get pregnant, and they have what they call Isaac, whose name means laughter, right? Because when Sarah heard this promise that at, at 99 she was going to get pregnant, she laughed. She laughed at God. You would too, probably, you know? Probably be a little freaked out too. And she laughed, and so they thought, hey, what a, you know, what a funny thing. And so they named their son Isaac, which means son of laughter. And they finally have this child. This, in some sense, this, this, this bright spot. His name was laughter. It was like this spot of joy in their life. The son that they were going to have that was going to inherit all the promises that God was going to work through and eventually bless all nations of the world. This was the child, as Hebrews chapter 11 says, the child of promise. And there, God now says, look, uh, if, if you flip over to Genesis chapter two, 22, God now says to him, you know that son you have, your only son, I want you to offer him to me. 
It says over in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, it says, After these things, these things, what things? Abraham had Isaac, his son was born, he had followed God, he had been, he had been wandering, and, and God brought him to, to the point where now he has this child of promise. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham. That word there for test means trial. It means to prove. It's not just like, hey, he gave him a test, yes, A, B, C, D. It's like, no, God wanted to really draw something out of him. And he said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said to him, here I am. Right, a little, little peppy and ambitious for, for, he doesn't know what's coming down the line, right? If he did, I think his response might have been like, uh, not today, God, you know. But God then says to him, Abraham, you know, take now your son, in verse 2, your only son Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Take your son, your only son whom you love. He's like, there's no backup plans. Don't look at Ishmael and be like, well, he could be the promised son. It's like, no, your only son in my eyes. And I want you to go take him out and I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. I'd have been like, wait, what? God, you're telling me after like being faithful and walking with you for so much of my life and doing this whole like stepping out into nothing thing, I'm I'm, I'm following you wherever I go, doing this whole dwelling in in a foreign land because I'm holding on to you, God. Now you spring it on me that that you're into human sacrifices. I have been like, man, this is a bad connection. Sorry, I can't hear you, God. I'm going through a tunnel. Click. You know, like, no hablo inglés. Like, I don't, we're not speaking the same language here, God. Like, this is not, like, I, this, is, this can't happen. But instead of responding how I might have responded in this situation, we're told that Abraham in verse 3, like, he wakes up the next day. He rises early. He cuts the wood. He gets the donkey ready. He grabs two servants and he grabs Isaac and he heads out. This guy, man, he puts his foot forward and, he's, and he starts marching towards this inevitable moment of sacrifice. No hesitation, no doubt, no crying, no arguing with God, no nothing like that. He wakes up the next morning and he goes, this is what God's called me to. So I'm doing it. And he walks out. And he, by the way, he never tells his wife. I don't think this whole thing would have gone very well if he had mentioned it to her. But he, he wakes up the next day, just goes, hey, we're going camping and hunting, you know, and it takes off, right? And, and, and there he is. He's out of there with these guys. And step after step, step, he starts to follow God. And we're told that after three days, they get to a certain place. And verse 5 says that, that Abraham stops with his servants. And it says, and Abraham said to these young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. And we will come back to you. Right? I would have been like, wait, what? I mean, first of all, look at his logic here. He's like, he knows he's going to go make a sacrifice of his son. And he says to these guys, hey, look, we're going to go walk out on the distance there. We're going to go worship. And we're going to come back to you. Like, Abraham, are you crazy? Are you just going to bring him back in like a little vase after you've burnt him up and be like, hey, me and my son are back. Like, how, how, what are you figuring here? What's going on in your mind? And we're told, as we kind of fast forward to our text in Hebrews 11 today, that in verse 19, it says that Abraham concluded that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. And that word for conclude over in Hebrews chapter 11, that word is a, an accounting term. It means, 
It means that he was factoring, and you want to use a better word, it's like reasoning. All along, all during this journey, in, in Abraham's head, he's doing the math, and he's going, God, I don't know how this is going to work out. God didn't reveal to him the plan. God didn't tell him, hey, A, B, and C are going to happen. I'm going to send you here, but you're not going to really have to do it. God didn't tell him any of that. He just said, go, and you're going to sacrifice your son. And Abraham, at the same time, was sitting here trying to do the math. Sitting here wrestling with this. And he reasoned, ultimately, in the end, that God was able to bring Isaac back from the dead if he needed to. We don't have any examples of that happening in the world up until now. And we don't even know if Abraham understood this entirely. But in this this trial here, Abraham's faith and trust in God led him to come to this conclusion that God can do something that I can't do or imagine. Abraham was still in the dark. He was still trying to sort through this confusing call. But at the end of it all, he just had to recognize that ultimately Isaac was not his to begin with. He came from God. And just like everything else in his life, Isaac belonged to God. So really, in his head as he figures this out, this is God's job to work this out. He can raise him from the dead if he wants to. And the story goes on. It gets even deeper here in verses 7 through 8. It says that Isaac spoke to, his father, or spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. It's like as he goes on here, and you look at the story, you don't really see much emotion from Abraham, right? It struck me kind of as odd this time around. I know we overlay a lot of emotion towards him because if we were in this situation, right, we'd be torn up. If I was in this situation, you'd hear it. You'd hear me arguing and debating with God. No, I don't want to do this. You'd see me crying along the way and dragging my feet. You know, along the way, I would have, I would have gotten lost every chance I could have. These three days they journeyed there, I would, have, I would have, you know, I don't know, dropped my donkey off to get service. Whatever I could do to get out of this. And I would have been showing emotion, right? But think if Abraham had done that, if he had let his emotion drive the show here, then, I mean, for sure, Isaac would have just bailed. For sure, if, if Sarah had known about this, and she would have probably divorced him and taken the kid and never let him see him again. The two guys, servants walking with him, would have been like, Abraham, you're crazy, man. Don't do this. Right? But Abraham knew, look, for the sake of everyone else and for the sake of following God, my faith means I'm not going to let my emotions run this show. Oh, he's torn up inside. Be sure of that. It says, this is the son whom you love, God says over in verse 2, Right? But Abraham has to go and hear this question from his son. Hey, my father, we've got everything set here. And and of course, the teenager that Isaac was at this time, he's looking at things and he's beginning to go, hey, dad, something's off here, right? We've got fire, we've got wood, we've got all the stuff for a sacrifice, except we don't have a lamb. We don't have anything for the burnt offering, right? This is not a good situation to be in for me. And he's going, no, don't worry, my son. God's got this covered. God's going to do something here. And as Abraham presses on, he gets to the point over the next few verses where he gets to that mountain in the region of Moriah, where they climb the hill, they climb the mountain, they lay out the wood, and he then binds Isaac to the wood. He then pins his son down. 
he then reaches out with his hand. He grabs his knife, the knife he had used so many times to offer an animal sacrifice to God. Something symbolic to God to cover for his sins. Something symbolic to God uh, to, to show his devotion and dedication. But now, as it says, he reaches out with his hand. It doesn't just mean he reaches out with a knife up. You would put, as you, as you offered an animal, you would put your hand on the animal. And the priest would later do this in the, New, in the, well, in the Old Testament under the law. The priest would put the hand on the animal and slit its throat before offering it as a sacrifice. It says that Abraham reaches out his hand. Puts it on his own son. What a feeling. Grabs the knife. Reaches up with it. And he's about to bring the knife down. When all of a sudden God intervenes. And, and we're told over in verse 10 that Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And verse 11. And the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven in the last possible moment and said, Abraham, Abraham. And so he said, here I am. Right, of course, he was pretty attentive at that point. He's like, what? Huh? Okay, I won't do this, right? And the angel of the Lord steps in, speaking from heaven, and says, stop. Don't harm that child, the young lad. Don't kill him. He intervenes, he stops, and he tells him to don't harm him. As Abraham does that and stops and puts the knife down, he looks over in the thicket on the side. He sees a ram stuck by its horn. They grab that ram and they offer the sacrifice. I don't know if Isaac ever trusted him fully again. You know, probably like, Dad, what was going on? But, but we're told he offers another sacrifice in place of that child. But we're told the angel of the Lord steps in, God himself. And later this angel of the Lord, I'll read a verse that the angel of the Lord speaks on behalf of God. I think this is a, what we call a Christophany, a pre-incarnate vision or, or appearing of Jesus before his incarnation in the New Testament. Where God spoke out, whether it's a theophany or Christophany, whether it was God himself or Jesus who stepped out and said, pause. The sacrifice doesn't need to be done. You see, it was God, never God's intent that Abraham was going to kill his son. The intent was the test. That Abraham would be willing, but wasn't that he would kill his son. And as he stops him there, he says, Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham makes that, that other sacrifice. It says in the New Testament, in, in, in the verses we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, it says, By faith, Abraham offered Isaac. I want you to understand the way that's phrased in, in the New Testament when it says that. By faith, Abraham offered Isaac. That word that when he offered there is a, what we call present active indicative. It's like in Abraham's head, this action was already done. Even though he never brought down the knife and took his son's life, it was like Abraham was so committed that he goes, man, this is yours, God. It's already done. It wasn't like he raised his hand and was like, hey, you know what, God, I'm going to raise my hand with this knife for 30 seconds. And I'm going to look around, and if you do anything, maybe like strike lightning, or I don't know, there's a bird noise, or anything that you do, I, I'm not going to kill my son. It's like, no, he, the moment he raised that knife, it was done in his head. He was offered as far as he was concerned and God was concerned. And God said, stop. Of course, it's a picture, and we'll get into this later, of what was to come one day where God wouldn't stop. He would offer his only begotten son on our behalf, but... Abraham here was so steadfast, so dedicated to God that, that he says, man, 
you would have gone through with this. And in my eyes, you did go through with it. In verse 12 of Genesis chapter 22, one of the key verses that reveals so much about faith. It says this after saying that he told him not to harm the lad. It says at the end there, For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. What a statement. Now I know that you fear God. If I read that, and and this kind of struck me this time, it's like, wait, what do you mean now you know God? Isn't this your thing to already know things in advance? (laughs) Isn't that kind of the part of the package, God? Aren't there all these scriptures that tell us, look, you are infinite in your knowledge and wisdom and understanding. You know all things from beginning and end. Couldn't you have just looked down the line and seen that I would have done this and been like, cool, I'm okay with that, Abraham. I know what you would have done. But God steps in and says, now I know. What in the world does that mean? Does that mean God doesn't know things? That suddenly he's learning? That God puts us in tests because he doesn't know what's going to happen with us? That God allows these hard things in our lives because he's just going, hey, let's see if they figure it out. Or is there something greater there? Something deeper that's being hinted at? I think there is. That word for know is a, it's a great word. It's the Hebrew word for, uh, it's, it's yadah. Right? If you're a Seinfeld fan, you know, yada, 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 right? We say that word. It's like, I know, I know, I know, you know, kind of, kind of thing, to know, no, no. And it means, in some sense, more than just to know. It's this idea of a deeper experiential knowledge. Uh, in, the New, or in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 4, when Adam knew Eve... It was a a, a euphemism for sex in their marriage relationship. It was like, yes, of course, Adam had already known. It's that same word, yada. It was like Adam had already known his wife. They had already messed things up together. They had already, you know, Genesis chapter 3 had already come along. They'd already been banished from the garden. It was like they, they knew each other. They met each other. They had a relationship. But there was a certain point where he knew her. And they had this deeper connected relationship. Where, where suddenly now there is this experiential relationship, this experiential knowledge. And God in some sense is saying to, to Abraham, look, now I know in this sense that in time, in this space and time, though I'm eternal, and I knew all along what you were going to do, I've been here with you. I've experienced this with you. You and I, we've got something special, man. I mean, this is... This, this sense of the word we use all the time, right? And you, it, me as a parent, I use it all the time. I'm like, one day, you know, you, you, with parents probably said this to you when you're younger, right? One day you'll know what it's like to be a parent. One day you'll know what it's like when you have to pay the bills. One day you'll know, and right? And what did you say as a kid? You're like, I know, I know, right? What is every kid great at saying? I know, like they know everything, but they don't. Right? Until you're a parent, until you've been through it in life, until you've stepped into that situation, it's like, then you know. Right? There's this deeper sense. I remember the, the first time I ever went to Yosemite. I was like, I grew up in Southern California, and everybody was always like, oh, Yosemite's so great. It's so beautiful. It's so amazing. you got to go to Yosemite. You know, like, and I just didn't care. I was like, I've seen the pictures. It's cool, some big rocks and stuff, and one that's been split in half. Like, I've seen the you know, trees anywhere I go. Like, I just didn't think it was a big deal. I even knew all about it because my family had been on camping trips where I had to stay behind and play soccer. And so it's like I knew about it. I knew they came back and told me all the little uh, Native American names for things. And, and it was like I knew that Yosemite was a big deal. But I didn't know until 2017 
And that first time I went to Yosemite, and if you've ever been there, then you know, right? That moment you go through that, that tunnel that they literally bore through the hole of a mountain, you know, the side of a mountain, you come through that Wawona tunnel and you look out over the valley and you just see the, the zigs and zags of the valley there. You see the granite hillsides almost like caving over to the side. You see these split rocks that just took raw power and strength. You see the waterfalls spilling forth. It's like the sun coming down and the sunsets. And, and I spent a week camping there and it was like, now I know Yosemite. It's like I had seen it and I'd seen the pictures. And, and in some sense, that experience brought about this deeper connectedness, understanding, and knowledge. And in that way, God's saying, look, Abraham, in this moment in time and space, he's like, I know that you fear me. (laughs) You're popular. (laughs) I know. I know that you fear God. I know And in some sense, he's saying, look, also you know, because this is a relational, experiential knowledge between the two of us, I know and you know, you now have something deeper as part of you. You've experienced me in a way that you've never experienced me before. My faithfulness, my goodness, the trust that you put in me when you felt like you had nowhere else to go, nothing else to do, when things didn't make sense. He's like, look, you've got something that you didn't have before. And this test and this trial was to reveal something and prove something in Abraham that was far greater, far deeper, far more vital than any other moment or experience in life. As a matter of fact, this would forever be talked about as probably the the pinnacle of Abraham's life. It would be forever looked at in the New Testament as they look back, multiple authors, Paul and, and James, as they look back and illustrate faith as one of the greatest acts of faith ever committed on this on this world. Right? And Abraham was already accounted as righteous before God, before this ever happened, because he had trusted and believed God before. But once this happened, James says in James chapter 2, verse 23, James says, at this point, Abraham was called the friend of God. What a, what a concept, right? He went from just being someone who followed God to now he was known in James chapter 2, verse 23, as the friend of God. Right? You aren't called the friend of God without entering into a deeper personal relationship and knowledge and understanding of God. And Paul would connect this in Hebrews chapter 11 and say, look, I know this seems wild. I know this seems like an extreme story. But there's an element of faith here that you can't miss. Look, Abraham now was, he was friends with God after this moment. A lot of people look at the story and they go, this is cruel, this is unfair. Some people even say, I won't follow a type of God who can do that. Understand this, after Abraham, who is the person in this story who went through this grand trial, came out of it, he didn't look at God in bitterness. He didn't look at God in anger. He didn't look at God in resentment. He looked at God as a friend. It shows you that trials aren't meant to make you bitter Make you angry. Abraham, in his faith, was willing to do something that all of us, I think we have a hard time doing, right? Not offering our kids as a sacrifice, right? I know there's days where we all feel like that. But Abraham was willing to let go of the most important thing in his world. He was willing to obey God in a way that said, I am holding nothing 
back from you, God. Nothing. And in the end, Abraham knew something that we all have to know. That this all belongs to God anyways. Every blessing, every good thing, everything you hope and enjoy in this life came from and was given by God in the first place. Even into the very breath of your lungs. And Abraham realized this, that look, faith at its core is in some sense sacrificial. If I'm going to say that I have faith, if I'm going to say that I trust God and obey God and walk with God, it means that, look, I have to learn to let go of things in my life. I can't trust God and make everything go according to my plan in life. It's just not going to work out. I can't trust God and protect everything and hold on to everything in my life. It's never going to work that way. I can't trust God while only giving him part of my life or certain areas of my life. I can't trust God and while at the same time saying, God, eh, not over here. Ooh, not this thing, God. That's just not me. That's just a different area. Ooh, no thanks, God. Right, let, me, let me be clear about this passage first and foremost. It's not calling us to make the same sacrifice that Abraham thought he was making. Look, if God, if you're in your head and, and maybe you're listening online and you think God wants you to make a sacrifice to someone, to murder someone, understand this. God did not intend for Abraham to do this. So stop and talk to someone else because God does not want you to do it either, okay? He's not looking for people that will go around killing other people because they're sacrificing them in the name of God. That's not what this passage is about. But it is about asking ourselves whether we're willing to say, hey, what am I holding back from you, God? Where is it in my life that I say, hey, God, I can't do that. I'm not going to give you that. That's not me. That's not the type of person I am. I, I want to hold this back. Or, or, God, I have my family and my things and my future and my image and my finances and, and my little world, Lord. Uh, I just want you to bless it and make it better. Well, that's not walking by faith. Wanting everything to go your way. I, I mean, think of it. Think of Abraham when he's called to offer Isaac. What if he had just been like, no, not going to do that. And he runs and he goes on the run with Isaac and he hides, you know, he grabs Sarah and they're like, God wants me to kill our kid. We're out of here. We're bailing. Well, what's the precedence for, precedence for faith in Abraham's life after that? What kind of influence is he going to have on his wife and on his kids, on, on the community around him? What kind of what kind of inheritance of the promise is Abraham ever going to see if he's not willing to trust God? See, the fact is, is if you run from God in these areas, if you're, if you're looking at all the situations you get into life and these trials that we face in life and you're going, you know what, God, I don't want to hang on. I don't want to go through this and you're running. Well, then, man, you will never, ever experience a deeper, more connected understanding of God. You might be able to get out of things for the moment, and Abraham might have been able to get out of this for the moment too, but he would have run from something far greater than he ever could have fathomed. And for every area in our lives that we hold back from God and try to manipulate it and hold on, well, then we don't move forward in faith. You lose out on something greater, right? This is the nature of trials, by the way. Anything that's a trial in life for us is a trial because it is life not going the way we want it to go. Right? If everything goes the way we want it to go, then it's not a trial. <laughs> That's just a good day. But man, trials come along when things don't go the way we hope, want, or expect them to go. And there comes a moment in that where God says, are you willing to just say, you know what? I'll trust you, God. I don't know how this is all going to work out like Abraham. 
but I know you can do some pretty miraculous things. I don't know how the end of this is going to look, but Lord, whether I, 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 I lose out or get ahead, at the end of the day, it's all yours, Lord. Right? What are we willing to trust God with? I know this is hard for me as a parent, and every parent comes across this, just as Abraham must have, right? The, the very nature of being a parent is learning to let go of your kids. And it's such a hard thing. You want to protect them, you want to smother them, you want to hide them from the world, but, but as a parent, you have to learn to, to let go. And, and, and I never, as a youth pastor, I've, I've been around kids for years, and it's like I never see kids that are doing well in life who have these hover parents who are holding them back from everything, who are protecting them from everything in the world. It's like, no, there has to be a balance of, of loving like Abraham did, but at the same time obeying God and trusting that the same Holy Spirit that works in all of us is working in them too. Right? It's the ability that we all have to have as we look at our lives and say, am I willing to let go of areas that I'm scared to trust God with? Right? In relationships, some people have been scarred. Some people have had some, some bad trauma. And, and it's so easy for us to just say, you know what? I'm never willing to, to, to let this person go. I'm never willing to fully trust another person. I'm never willing. But God comes along and says, look, hey, are you willing to trust me? Are you willing to let go? when I bring things in or bring things out of your life. With our finances, with, with even the very breath in our lungs. When that diagnosis comes along that says maybe, hey, it's terminal. Are you going to freak out? Are you going to be angry? Or are you going to look at very, the very breath in your lungs and say, you know what, God, it's all a gift from you. I can let go. You see, letting go is not an act of giving up or quitting. It's not saying, hey, I don't want to try anymore, God. I'm just giving in. I'm just quitting. It's, no, it's an act of faith that says, Lord, you can do more than I ever could here. You can do greater than I ever could here. And this came from you in the first place. Therefore, I can let this go back to you. And when we do that, we enter into a moment where we, we trust and experience and know God in a way we never had before where we trust his goodness. And the real, the real test of faith is not what do you know or what do you not know about God? How good are you? How many things do you do to please God? Do you go to church enough? Do you do this? No, no. the real question of faith is, is there a willingness to submit my life to God? Even when I don't understand or know the way out. God, I don't know why you're having me move on from this, but I'm going to trust you. God, I can't understand why this relationship or person was removed from my life. But you know what, Lord? You give and you take away. God, I don't know what good can come from this thing. I don't know what, what, what in this world that I have to function in, in this job I have to do, in this, that, or the other in my life. I don't see how this is going to work out. Well, God, you know what? At the same time, I know that you're good. And I know that you're in control. And in every trial and every test, the question is not, how do I get out of this? How can I squirm my way off the operating table? But rather, it's what am I willing to let go of and to trust God with? Am I willing to hand this to God? Not that he would take the trial away, but that by faith I could know him in a way I never have before. By faith I could trust him with something that I couldn't make happen on my own anyways. And as Abraham reasoned with God, that's what he was doing there. He was saying, look, I don't know exactly how that's going to end up here, Lord. But you know what? I trust it to you. 
Jesus over in the New Testament, I, I love this, over in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus, when he came on the scene, he looked at his disciples and followers and he said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Jesus would say, look, are you looking for life? Are you looking for something greater? Well, it doesn't come from holding on and holding back from God. It doesn't come from, from escaping and trying to get out of difficult things. He says, look, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. There's a cross involved for every single one of us when it comes to our faith. A cross that says, you know what, Lord, even my life, I'm willing to let you have it. And Jesus says, that's the point when you let go is where you actually find life. That's where you connect with God. That's where you understand things. That's where Abraham became the friend of God. At the point that he was willing to let go. And for all of us, as we kind of wrap it up here, it's a great question to ask ourselves. What am I holding back from you, God? What am I not willing to let go of? And you might say, I don't know. I don't know if I can trust God. Look, the second greatest thing about this passage, or maybe it's the first greatest, it just depends on what perspective you look at it, about this passage is not just that it teaches us about our faith and what we need to let go of, but this passage provides a great sneak preview or glimpse or, or, or picture down the line of what God was going to do in Christ Jesus for us. For just as he called Abraham to offer up his son, we're told that God offered up his only begotten son. The Father in heaven sent down his son because he looked at you, he looked at me, he looked at all of us and he thought, I love you so very much that I don't want to be apart from you. That I don't want you to go through life wondering if God is there or not, if God's going to be there for me. I don't want you to look at your future and your eternity and be in question here. I love you so very much that I'll send my only begotten son and I'm not going to pull back the knife. I'm not going to hold back on the sacrifice, but I will allow him to be sacrificed for your sake. The point is that you would have everlasting life through believing on Jesus. The point is that you would know God. The point is that for all eternity, you could look back at a loving father who gave his only son for you and know that's the type of God you're putting your faith and trust in. That's the God that you're putting your hope in. That's the God who is holding on to you when you don't know if you can make it. And I look at this story and I'm blown away at the future and God's love for us and Jesus Christ and, and at the call we all have to walk by faith. Faith is in some sense sacrificial. You're not sacrificing to earn God's approval or pleasure, to become righteous, you're letting go in your life, that sacrifice of letting go, that you might allow God to have control. That you might not have to feel like it's all on you to find everything, to do everything, to make it. God's got it. And his question for each and every one of us is, are you willing to let go? In that trial that you're facing right now, in that area of your life where maybe you're harboring resentment and bitterness towards someone, in those areas in life that are going to come this week, this month, this year, where, where you're going to feel overwhelmed, where you're going to feel like you want to quit, 
where you're going to feel like you want to run away. God says, know that you can trust me. Know that I'm here with you. Even unto the very last breath, what you give to me, don't worry. It's my job to either give it back like he did with Abraham or to move you on. But what you give to me, you'll never ever, you'll regret a lot of things in life, but you'll never ever regret what you give to God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so very much that you are a God of love and grace. That though Abraham was called to this tough test, it wasn't your intent that he would actually offer his son. It's a great picture and question for all of us to ask ourselves, what are we willing to, to allow ourselves to give up that we might know you in a greater way? We might be drawn into a deeper relationship with you that we could never have any other way. Lord, we don't want to just be people who are phony, who say we believe in you, who say we trust in you, who say, yeah, this Christian thing is what we do in life. But Lord, we want to be people who truly know you in the deepest sense of the word, who understand what our God is like. So we pray that through all the opportunities of faith you give us this week, we would, we would learn to let go. We learn to trust you like never before. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.